Greetings, Talofa. This is Leotawa Dr. John Peterson, and you are listening to the Alofa Movement Podcast Series. Hope everyone's doing well out there. We've got uh, the end of January here in Minnesota, and it's relatively warm, uh, comparatively speaking, to what we have had in the last couple winters. But um, things are good here, and really appreciate folks listening in to the podcast series. This is podcast number six for the Alofa Movement. And today we have Dr. Krista Soria from the University of Minnesota with us. Krista is a, one of the things she does is she's a researcher and she works for the University of Minnesota. And she worked on a project recently for the Minnesota Education Equity Partnership, otherwise known as MNEP or MNEP. And so today we're going to be talking about the project that she was one of the lead researchers on. It was a project called the Reducing Racial Disparities in College Completion Project, and we're just so thrilled to have her here with us today. Krista, thank welcome. You. Hello, thank you. So, um, the name of this podcast is called the Alofa Movement. Alofa in Samoan means love. So, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is you love about the work that you do as a researcher? Thank you. I love researching the experiences of underrepresented and marginalized students in higher education, and I'm really focused on helping to highlight the experiences of those students so that administrators, staff, and faculty can make the experience better on, in higher education campuses everywhere. I love researching the things that help college students to learn and grow, but also to be successful and to earn their credentials. A part of the many, many things that I loved about this project in particular was the ability to collaborate with a wide variety of folks across higher education institutions and systems and the ability to really connect with students, to learn from them about their experiences, particularly with financial aid and uh, specifically some of the challenges that they faced with financial aid as well. So that was something that I really loved about this project is it really unveiled the experiences of students and their significant challenges financing their higher education journey. Very cool. So I'm wondering, you, know, you talked a little bit about your passion and your love for research and working with underserved populations, especially in higher ed. Tell us a little bit about your personal experience with higher education and how that passion motivated you or motivates you now to do the research that you do. That's a great question. I was a first generation college student and I had no idea at the time, but I sort of felt different from my classmates who would say things like, what was on your summer reading list? And I would think, we didn't really have books <laughs> around the house and we didn't really talk about things like summer reading lists. My parents didn't go to college. They weren't able to advise me on the college going process. And when I was a student, I somehow felt different than my classmates. I felt like I didn't quite belong. And unfortunately, that sense of not belonging or imposter syndrome has carried with me. I have a couple of bachelor's degrees, three master's degrees, two graduate certificates, and a doctorate degree. And still, <laughs> and even though I've worked in higher education now for 16 years, I still feel as though I don't quite belong. Mm. That one day somebody is going to tap on my shoulder and say, we found you out, we discovered you, you don't belong here. 
And I think that that persistent feeling of not belonging helps me to connect to other students from similar underrepresented or marginalized populations as well to sort of say, I kind of know what you're going through. Um, and, you know, as a first generation student from a very low income working class background, I also struggled with paying for higher education. I was lucky, I think very fortunate to fall into opportunities to have a lot of jobs on and off campus by the time I was a senior. I had a full-time job off campus, working classes, I was working on campus, uh, you know, going to school full-time and juggling all of those responsibilities. And I also know how challenging that is mm -hmm. and how it sort of draws a person away from um, all of the awesome opportunities that college has for students, right? It kind of takes you away from those things and makes it more challenging. Um, but I was fortunate to fall into opportunities to work on campus as a resident advisor and in the admissions office and at the front desk and, you know, while also gaining a lot of leadership experiences too. But for me, college was transformative. It really moved me, um, you know, as a working class person into understanding um, middle and upper class society in, mm -hmm. in a way. And, um, but it was definitely challenging to navigate some of those boundaries. So I think that my own experiences with financial aid, being a low-income student, um, having a lot of student loans, like a lot of Minnesota college students do. In fact, we're one of the, the worst states in the nation with the proportion of students who graduate with student loan debt um, because we require students to put so much skin in the game here in Minnesota that they, they're taking out student loans to fund their experience. But I think my right. own experiences also influenced my desire to research in particular the impact of financial aid on students' outcomes and how for many students that means dropping out of college because it's not affordable for them to attend. Oh, fantastic for that. That response is fantastic and thank you mm -hmm. for sharing a little bit about your personal background and how it motivates the work that you do, not only at the University of Minnesota, but the work that you've done for the Minnesota Education Equity Partnership. Um, Knowing a little bit myself about the Minnesota Education Equity Partnership, MNEP, I know that there are five big, bold goal areas. Mm -hmm. And one of those goal areas is in creating greater access and equitable outcomes in the higher ed space. And so this particular project, which was funded by the Joyce Foundation, a nonprofit uh, organization out of Chicago, Illinois, uh, and thank you very much to the Joyce Foundation for funding this project. We really appreciate that and, and also for approaching MNEP to uh, um, do this work in the first place. Um, one of the things that we do or that is done at MNEP is a focus on research. I know that MNEP focuses in on networking and convening. They also focus in on advocacy and they focus in on policy change and shifting policies at the state level. How do you envision the work that you were a part of with this particular project fitting into kind of that meta frame of research, networking, convening, uh, advocacy, and policy shifting. I believe one of the things that we've done in this research area is we've deconstructed the way that financial aid is working in the state of Minnesota to provide some really actionable recommendations. Currently in the state of Minnesota, regardless of family income, students are responsible for paying 50% of the cost of higher education. And of course, a student whose family makes less than $20,000 a year, and maybe there's four or five people in that family, they're not able to contribute the $12,000 or $15,000 that it might 
cost to attend half of the cost of education and so uh, it, it's a it's a really unjust system where we're expecting people to pay the same rate out of pocket um, whether that's through their personal finances or student loans this happens for most students but it's a really unjust system and I think that by deconstructing these policies and then showing the corresponding impacts on students um, people of color indigenous students low-income students older students um, all of these students are significantly less likely to actually not only enter into higher education, but they're less successful when they do enter into higher education. So they're significantly more likely than their peers who are traditionally aged, white, um, from upper income families are less likely to graduate and earn that credential. And thus we're continuing these sort of systems of, of uh, social reproduction where Poor people stay poor and wealthy people stay wealthy. And through the research, we've deconstructed these policies and we've really demonstrated specifically from a race-based lens mm -hmm. how these policies are impacting the lives of students. And from there, we can move towards policy and then advocacy. So one policy suggestion is to change the way that we're calculating financial aid in the state mm -hmm. of Minnesota to perhaps model one of our um, other, you know, closer states or other states in the nation to model the way that they're calculating financial aid um, to make it more equitable for students. That's one solid policy recommendation. And then we're also moving towards advocacy. So how do we advocate these changes among legislators, policymakers? How do we get higher education institutions to rethink the way that they're calculating financial aid for individual students? Um, what can we do from a systems and state policy perspective to make changes um, in the way that students are held responsible for the cost of higher education. Thank you. You mentioned the role that race plays in terms of the work that was driven, you know, through the grant provided by the Joyce Foundation. And I know um, that the Minnesota Education Equity Partnership uh, uses race equity and a race equity lens to analyze the work that it does and the movement building that it does. I'm curious for you, what impact or effect did your work with Manip have on your capacity to do the research from that race equity-based lens? It definitely challenged me a bit because my lens tends to be from a social class and socioeconomic perspective. That's what I primarily wrote my dissertation on. And I write a lot about first-generation low-income working class students. So it really stretched me beyond to think more about the ways that race and social class are intersecting. I think it's pretty clear when we analyze the the ways that the, the current financial aid policies originated. They were developed in the 1980s by you know primarily um, wealthy white men who were the legislative bodies at the time who made these policies. And so when we think about it beyond just social class, how, how these policies are um, continuing to benefit those from middle and upper class families, we think about it from a race lens, it definitely challenged, I think, all of us to look at the ways in which we live in a highly racial, racially oriented society. White privilege, uh, thinking about the um, white supremacy, all of these financial aid policies in particular can be examined through those lenses beyond the traditional lenses of social class. And, um, you know, we live in a, a highly racialized world. And I think um, looking at it through just social class tends to wash out the effects or maybe it help us to easily ignore the effects of racism in society, which is, of course, rampant. Okay, so 
That's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot to think about. And I really appreciate you sharing a little bit about the change and the challenges that you personally had. Uh, one of the things that we talk about at Manip or that Manip uh, talks about is the importance of both inside and outside change. Mm -hmm. And so that transformation is something that individuals go through in order to change systems, mm -hmm. in order to change structures, whether it be related to race or gender or sexual orientation or class, like you mentioned. And the importance of that intersectionality and looking at things through the intersection of multiple types of identities mm -hmm. and transforming systems, structures, and cultures. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. I think one thing is that social class impacts us all regardless of our race. But flipped on the other side of that coin, race impacts essentially social class in much greater disproportionality. So in other words, people of color in our society are significantly more likely to be from low-income backgrounds, right? To, to sort of struggle with poverty in our society. And in part, that's potentially um, uh, intentional, right? I mean, as a society, we've developed all of these policies from redlining to, you know, um, thinking about the ways in which schools are segregated or desegregated and thinking about the ways that we fund our schools, they're racially based. And so social class disproportionately impacts others from, uh, from you know, people of color and in indigenous communities. So, you know, it kind of stretched, it stretched me and it's, I hope it stretches others to think about these as uh, perhaps being race first instead of social class first. And although these things are intersectional, I think as a society, when we were developing these early policies, redlining, school segregation, school districts, thinking about the ways in which schools are funded, um, those were racial policies. Um, and they've also impacted social class, but they were race first policies. Thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, getting a little, a little more into the weeds with the, with the actual uh, white paper. Mm -hmm. How long was the white paper? I think what hundred and some fifty, hundred twenty, some pa thirty pages. pages? <laughs> <laughs> you can find the white paper actually uh, on the Manip website, the MNEP website, under the resources tab. Uh, you can also find the policy brief from which uh, the white paper, uh, the policy brief was driven from the the white paper. Uh, also, an executive summary can be found on the website as well. I'm wondering. What are you hopeful about as a result of the work that you and and others have been putting into to create these documents? What what gives you hope? It's it is my dream that we're able to re-envision the way that we're calculating financial aid across the state. Our policies are 30 years old at this point. They're outdated. They don't reflect the needs of sort of today's students um, in a lot of capacities. And they make a lot of assumptions about students' ability to pay. And I think that those assumptions are faulty. And it would be my dream and my hope that we completely redesign the way that we're thinking about who gets what in higher education. Um, I also hope that this lends a little bit more support from the state to higher education institutions to keep the cost of tuition down. So I think what you're talking about is broadly higher ed finance at a state level mm -hmm. in terms of how institutions, is that a fair, so it's yeah. both student financial aid and? Exactly, okay. the larger policies funding higher education institutions at the state level. Do you think the, we fund, an, do you think we provide, what's that trend line look like over right. the last 20 years? Yes, the state appropriations for higher education have decreased significantly over the last couple of years and as a consequence, institutions have had to individually increase their tuition rates. And then the burden falls on students and parents to sort of 
you know, mind that gap. The challenge is a fundamental question of whether higher education is an individual benefit or a societal benefit. And when we have people in power who say, you know, it's sort of more of an individual benefit, um, they're less likely to fund the enterprise of higher education and individual institutions as a consequence. And so the burden falls on students if the benefit is individual. And that's sort of written into the financial aid policies in the state level where there's language about students personal responsibility and they sort of see it as a shared responsibility but the idea is that um, if students you know again I keep using the term putting some skin in the game mm -hmm. but if students you know contribute then they'll then they will work harder to achieve that credential but the, the onus is on the individual there in that instance and um, you know unfortunately these higher education institutions are not built for all students they're not really accommodating for all students um, at the University of Minnesota, where I work, for instance, a lot of adult learners, non-traditional students in terms of age, um, who are very traditional on many college campuses, not only in the state, but in the nation. Um, but those students really struggle because we don't have a lot of night classes. We don't have a lot of online classes. Um, the the uh, uh, dean of the College of Education recently threatened to cut our only child care center on campus. So we're making all of these moves Rent is really high around campus. I mean, all these things are happening that make it harder for students who are non-traditional to earn their credential at the University of Minnesota. Um, and so I think if we think about it from a broader systems perspective, perspective because the state has decreased funding for institutions, institutions mm -hmm. have had to make these changes, but the students and the parents are the ones who are struggling to, to manage what the state should be providing in terms of higher education funding. And presumably that would increase the debt burden yes. at an individual level, but also at a collective level across the state for students who are mm -hmm. uh, either have attended college recently in the last 20 years or who currently are attending college. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Yep. Okay. Yep. And consequently, that you know that that loan burden exists, and we've been demonstrated to be one of the states where the majority of our students, I think it's sixty-eight percent of our students, are graduating with some student loan debt, and I think we're fourth highest in the nation for um, for the debt load that students incur as well. Um, the specific details are in the white paper, and I don't sure. have it in front of me, and I don't have that memory. We won't hold you to it thank on you. the Olofa movement thank here. Thank you, yeah, please, <laughs> thank you. Yes, send me some love, I need it right now. Um, but but the point is that we, we do have a lot of students who graduate with a significant amount of debt, and uh, as we all know, that's increasingly challenging to pay off given wage stagnation and other challenges that graduates are facing in society. So they're graduating with a lot of debt burdens. We're also seeing significant societal impacts, including the fact that younger people are delaying things like um, marriage and starting families and purchasing a home, and that has economic ripples. Um, so when we think about higher education as just an individual benefit, we're neglecting the significance of having a higher education credential in our society, which matters economically, which matters in so many other measures as well. But, uh, you know, that state policy of defunding higher education over time has negative influences and impacts on our state overall. Sounds like an underlying call to action right there. Yeah, I hope it is. <laughs> <laughs> so I know that um, there's so many different things we could talk about. I know that the Research Collaborative Table is an organization, not an organization, but a group that uh, MNEP uh, brings together on a monthly basis. And I know you're a member of that, mm -hmm. that group and uh, that that group is in the process of transforming and becoming equally an advocacy group as well. Um, 
But I want to ask you a little bit about the methodology that was employed for this particular research project and study. I know that it was in some ways, many ways, a mixed method study. Mm -hmm. I know that your background is more in quantitative, mm -hmm. but you also have some qualitative background as well. I'm really interested, were there any specific qualitative data points, anecdotes, stories that you heard mm -hmm. from students mm -hmm. that you could, you know, share just a little, a little bit of, um, obviously we don't want to know who the students are, right, right. <laughs> but um, that, that really resonated with you both in terms of your own experiences as a college student, mm -hmm. but also as a, a person who works in higher education. Absolutely. I have so many great stories from my interviews with students. I interviewed 22 college students, all of whom had received a Pell Grant, and then thus were also eligible. And what's a Pell Grant? Oh, the Pell Grant is a federal grant for students from low-income backgrounds. They meet certain economic thresholds with family members and family income included. And so that's um, up to, I think it's up to five to $6,000 per year that students are eligible to receive. Um, again, don't quote me on that exact number, but it's See a the white report. paper. See the white paper. Um, <laughs> or the brief. Or the brief, yes, thank you. Um, so that, but those students are also qualified then for the state grant as well. And so I was able to interview uh, 22 college students about their experiences with financial aid. Um, the biggest themes that I heard were that students were struggling to, they, they were engaging in several types of financial aid and working multiple jobs to make things work. So students would be receiving scholarships, a Pell Grant, the state grant, a federal loan, sometimes a state loan. Uh, they were working work study. I mean, they were getting financial aid from every possible source. In some cases, it was also family loans that they were also receiving. Um, so every possible type of financial aid to make to pay tuition. Mm -hmm. uh, they were working multiple jobs on and off campus. And I would ask them things like, what's the impact of that on your educational experience? Because they were working so many jobs, both on and off campus. And students would tell me, you know, I'm working at Target 20 hours a week, and then I work at the bookstore 20 hours a week, and then I work, I mean, just, you know, How story. do you have time to study if you're working exactly, exactly. 30, 40 hours a week? Exactly. And for many of those students, because they had to work just to pay rent, or uh, if they were on campus to pay expenses for living on campus or to get money to eat um, they were missing out on other opportunities to engage in things like internships or study abroad or uh, serving as a leader in a student organization things that we know are sort of hallmarks of undergraduate experiences that help them in future careers um, there's been a lot of great national surveys of employers and employers look for specific things on you know student graduates resumes and they're looking for evidence of like communication skills and leadership and other opportunities those are always in the top five to ten and uh, you know students who don't have those things are probably going to be overlooked by future employers mm -hmm. and so consequently you may not be eligible for those higher income higher wage jobs students who don't um, are not engaged as fully on campus also benefit also lose the benefit mm -hmm. of uh, social networking. So connecting with friends and colleagues who one day um, could you know, serve as a reference for them or help somebody to get that critical first job out of college or jobs later. As we all know, social networking, we, we, I like to say um, relationships are the currency of power. And so who you know... Oh, I like that. Relationships you know, are the currency of power. Right, yep. Who wow. you know really matters in getting you to where you're sort of at today. 
Um, and I've got lots of stories about just personal connections with people. And then that person says, um, let's hire you because I know you and I know sure. your work. Um, and I have people all the time who I sort of have known and made, you know, hopefully made a good impression on who reach out to me later in life to say, you know, I've got this opportunity for you. I'd love for you to apply or at least to be a part of the candidate pool. Sure. Um, and so, you know, it really is a lot about who we know in society and social networks go a long way. And if students are so busy working off campus or at a job on campus that doesn't relate to their academics, you know, in the dining center. A lot of these students also relied upon public transportation, so they'd be spending hours on the bus, taking the bus and the light rail, you know, and walking and putting it all together just to make it to campus if they were living at home. Trying to write a term paper on their laptop while they're yep. riding the bus? Exactly right. Yeah, exactly right. Maybe not the most conducive setting for it, doing some writing, that's some academic right. writing. That's right, yep. And students have said things like, uh, you know, I didn't retake classes I knew I should have but I, because I couldn't afford it. I'm taking steps to graduate as soon as possible. They're really focused on the money side of things, which means foregoing opportunities that wealthier students might have mm-hmm. that then in turn build that social capital that students have, that social and cultural capital that help them get jobs later on in society. So I think those were some of the bigger themes that I heard from students. Really, one, just juggling every possible form of financial aid. Two, working significant numbers of hours to make ends meet. Um, the way in which we also calculate living and miscellaneous expenses in the, our higher education policy. LME? Um, yep, the LME, again, in the white paper. LME, yeah, the, you know me. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Um, but the, the calculation um, is woefully short and does not accurately reflect the lived experience of a college student. For one, the calculation focuses only on nine months of living and miscellaneous expenses. That's, you know, housing and food. Wait a second, let me cut now. How many months are there in a year? Exactly. There's 12. 12 months, exactly. So the nine-month calculation is like a, a, you know, a lot sort of a logical fallacy. Why would we only give students the, you know, funding that they need for nine months when we all live for 12 months out of a year? Yeah, it would almost automatically seem to tilt the scales against the student, not in the student's favor. Yep. And I think the embedded assumption when the policy was made was that, oh, you'll just go home and live with mom and dad when, you know, when, when school's out, right? And they'll take care of your living expenses. But again, that model of housing does not reflect the experiences of many students today. If one is even renting an apartment at the University of Minnesota, you have to sort of have a 12, like 12 month contract in many ways. And, you know, well, that's true. And if somebody is, you know, an older person like myself, for instance, um, I'm, I have nobody to go to in the summer to just live with. And I mean, I have to be responsible for my housing costs. And if I was an older student going back, I'd be responsible for all of those things, of course. Um, so, so I think a lot of the assumptions that are embedded in the state higher education mo- models um, that currently exist are just simply outdated and they don't reflect the needs of students, like the legitimate needs of students. Even if our student population hasn't changed, but it has, but even if it hadn't, it still makes a lot of assumptions about students that are just false. Right. I think one of the, one of the comments that came through uh, in the editing process that executive director and representative Carlos Mariani made was that uh, a question and the question was uh, how do we expect students to perform in college if they're living in poverty Mm -hmm. Um, I I can't imagine it would be a really super high expectation um, or maybe it is a high expectation and we're not providing that support like you've said Mm -hmm. to really meet uh, students needs based on housing health care food security 
those types of things. Um, well, this is fascinating. I know that you've also done some other writing and some other work. Would you like to talk a little bit about that too? Sure, absolutely. Um, I've published around 75 peer-reviewed academic articles. I've written a couple of books and edited a few books as well. A lot of the things that um, are really concerning and top of mind to me include um, recently edited a volume on campus climate in uh, higher education institutions, thinking about the experiences specifically, as I've mentioned before, underrepresented marginalized students do not perceive that they're welcome on their college campuses. Okay. And we need to do things to reframe those structures. Um, so not be, inclusive. Exactly, exactly, to be more inclusive. Um, yeah, I think that the sub part of that title is opportunities for diversity and inclusion, right? And that's something that we need to really work on. Um, higher education in general is not inclusive. If we think about the admissions process, <laughs> the majority of institutions, right, that are very, you know, you're not meeting this particular test score, and you're not from this background, you don't have these experiences, you're excluded, right? And so I think we need to think about opening access to higher education in general to be more inclusive to more learners. Um, but I've also written a lot recently about factors that influence college students' leadership development and their participation in community engagement. That's another big area for me. Um, and then high impact practices, things that we can do on college campuses to really support the needs and the development of students. So once we have them, how can we work with them more concertedly? What types of activities can we engage them in? And in ways that are going to be more democratically open and available. One little tiny thread of research that I've engaged in is internationalization at home activities. So instead of expecting that students can afford the expense of studying abroad and the time away from their families and work and all the other, you know, and, 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 and uh, you that, mean the gap year costs money? <laughs> going to studying abroad, it costs yeah, money? Yes, it does. A lot of money. A lot. Yep. And instead of sort of expecting that all students would just have the ability to go and engage in that, can we offer international activities on campus to give students the same benefits so they don't we don't expect them to spend you know five thousand dollars and and miss work for two months and miss classes and have all of those you know disruptions to their daily lives but can we do things like lectures and workshops and series and engage students in research or uh, program development, can we do things on campus to help mm -hmm. students? So I'm really trying to see what are the things that we can do, again, to democratize higher education opportunities, especially those that we know are particularly impactful on student outcomes. That's cool, democratizing education. It reminds me of John Dewey. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's what I think of when I hear that. So, Well, Krista, it's been a real treat to have you on the LOFA movement and focusing on the MNEP uh, project that was funded by the Joyce Foundation, the Reducing... Uh, racial disparities in college completion policy brief in the white paper uh, that you wrote and that uh, so many people I mean let's I just want to say thank you to you personally you. for the thank work you that the you've opportunity. done. You're welcome. Yeah, it's and been a joy to be a part of the research collaborative table. I mean, those conversations are so generative and fruitful. And um, what a gift to just be a part of that table, literally, like to sit at the table Absolutely. with folks and engage in these critically important conversations. I know I just interrupted you. No, it's all but good. But I am the one who's grateful, so thank you. Oh, well, much respect. Appreciate it. And, uh, Thanks to everyone who was involved in the project, and hopefully we can get some other folks from the RCT, the Research Collaborative Table, uh, from Manip, Manip's Research Collaborative Table, uh, in here to do a podcast. Uh, so thank you again, thank and you. Uh, thank you for you folks that are out there listening to the Alofa Movement podcast. Uh, this is Leah Tawa, Dr. John Peterson, and Dr. Krista Sawyer from the University of Minnesota. 
U of M's fortunate to have you on board. I'm fortunate to yeah, be there. Thank right you. On. <laughs> so thank you so much and have a blessed day. Fatale to a man. We are. We come to check this culture.